Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin. My name is Matt Brusky, and I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action of Wisconsin. And welcome to Spring in Wisconsin. And I mean that in all ways possible, folks. Oh, 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 what a beautiful week it's been. Robert Craig is with us, the Executive Director here at Citizen Action. Robert, good to have you. Great to be here in a uh, post-election spring. Oh, Robert, it is. I'm staring out the window. The sun is out. The weather forecasters told me this morning that we're supposed to bring out the the grills and the patio furniture and that like the next two weeks is warm weather. The election. Oh, we'll talk more about the election. The Bucks. The Bucks just wrapped up. All the way through the playoffs. The Brewers. Oh, my God. Bob Euchre's going to have an aneurysm calling these games. Ah, it's just, it's it's a beautiful time to be in Wisconsin. Democracy, Robert. Democracy appears to have a beating heart in Wisconsin again. And that is absolutely talking about the state Supreme Court election. Robert, it was historic. Um, the margin, the turnout, the stakes, the spending, <laughs> the level of involvement of regular people in these arcane, what used to be arcane Supreme Court elections, what were we, 37, close to 40% turnout? <laughs> Robert, I'm going to ask... Uh, for your initial top thoughts about at least the number one takeaway um, from this major win, right? Uh, 10 points again, 10 points. Uh, Kelly doubled up, doubled up twice in a row. Uh, Robert, your top thoughts uh, on Tuesday night's historic uh, state Supreme Court victory. Your top, your top thought, I should say. <laughs> you can't overstate the turnout here. I heard political scientists beforehand saying, oh, we'd never exceed the record during the recall, which was, you know, arguably the biggest civic engagement event in Wisconsin history. And so it wouldn't be up to 1.5 million, maybe 1.2, maybe 1.3. They even, wasn't even sure it'd go beyond the 2019, which was the second highest turnout. It blew the doors off of both of those. So this is unprecedented. And it's because just like the midterms were the first elections where governor's race and the U.S. Senate race were like our presidential races, where national power and the national contest over democracy was in play and over constitutional rights, same thing has happened in Supreme Court. Now, what the takeaway is, is that our side, which means the coalition, which has a lot of forces that don't agree on everything within them, that is within the Democratic Party, the Big Ten Democratic Party, is now fully aware and awake to the right-wing conspiracy, the corporate multi-billionaire conspiracy to end democracy and to create something closer to a plutocracy. And that's been going on as a lot of writers in the progressive side have been writing and journalists for a very long time. In fact, the court takeover strategy 
dates back to the 1990s, and Wisconsin was one of the first states to adopt it within the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, ours being the Wisconsin Manufacturers and Commerce, who was, did spend five plus million in, in this campaign. So that bodes well for 2024, particularly if Trump or another MAGA candidate at DeSantis is on the ballot, just in terms of our level of mobilization, we do need to bear in mind that they did not, we don't have all the final numbers. It certainly doesn't look like their side mobilized at that level. Daniel Kelly was a very flawed candidate. And we got to remember 2016 is still not impossible. They can mobilize to a very high level as well. And Ron Johnson was able to mobilize to a high enough level to eke out a third term, shocking for such an unqualified and uh, compromised senator. But yeah. this is very positive for 2024. But you said the port and port, Matt. It's not, you know, because we're fight fighting the big money regime that is toxic in many ways. We'll get to what is beginning to disinfect it is people getting involved, taking back our democracy. That is the positive thing here. Voting and going beyond voting, volunteering, calling people, getting engaged in what democracy has to be. Yeah, folks, we had uh, a lot of activity, especially at the end. Lots of volunteers, lots of contact. Um, but Robert, I want to say what I think is you it's the top one of the biggest takeaways and super important uh about this election in addition to of course democracy uh being alive as I said and it's that I think issues at the end of the day mattered here and the and I'm gonna say kudos uh for I have a lot of and we'll, we'll we'll talk more about them down the road. Issues with things around, you know, the Protosewitz campaign and just sort of things that happened in the campaign, particularly around, you know, just the toxic, trashy, awful commercials that attempted to distract the voters from the real issues. And the victor here was that the voters saw through that because if you're if if you were paying attention, right. The dominant issue in this election was democracy, was a woman, a person's, anyone's right to an abortion, right? Fundamental issue on the phones, heard it all the time, right? And a whole bunch of other issues, right? It was a Christmas tree of issues that I would describe as, you know, critical to the functioning of democracy, fair maps, a whole bunch of other things related to justice and and you know quite frankly robert the the biggest issue right people versus money and the corruption of of money but all of that stuff mattered because that's what janet was inserting into this election for the first time we were having a full-throated values slash ideological conversation in the supreme court that we have been begging for and so we may not have agreed with the way all the issue discussions <laughs> played out, but damn, at least there was this conversation. It mattered. And, 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 and because we have often felt that on the issues are the, the progressive populist democratic vision, pluralistic democratic vision of the world is a majoritarian position. If we could just have those fights. So, I feel like that was what won here. You don't get a 10-point margin like that. Uh, in addition to what Robert mentioned, Kelly was just a 
fatally flawed candidate. I mean, holy smokes, completely unappealing. And by the way, his meltdown in his, <laughs> I can't call it a concession speech, his hate rant um, exemplifies exactly why the vote came back the way it did. And it also reveals sort of the true nature of the autocrat and the person who doesn't really believe in democracy in the will of the people and ultimately like is convinced their vision of the world is right and is going to insert it and push it upon others and robert i'm going to go back to you i want more of your thoughts but i see all of this too in the context of the big news that broke today in pro pro publica about um Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas and his complete and utter corruption with a billionaire. And I believe that is the tip of the iceberg of these kinds of relationships often that we probably might see and the corruption in the courts, the corruption of money. And we are going to have to address that, folks. I don't care how well you think this election went for us uh, with Janet winning. We can't win this kind of arms race and the money that was spent on this. Uh, it was a national effort on our side to compete with a couple of billionaires, folks, and a very unpopular candidate. So we got it. We do have to address that. Robert. Yeah, I think you're right to connect it to the big money here. And to Clarence Thomas, which we can dig into a little more. I know we're, we don't have that much time left in this segment. Um, I would just say on the money we have this situation where we have to compete on this ground or we lose democracy, but we need to elect people, particularly legislative governors level, who are committed to changing this system. Um, as you know, I'm on the Earl Ingram radio show Wednesdays at 10 a.m. And a couple of the callers talked about how we need to talk more about the big money. And I said to them, that's a little bit that's fine. We're talking about it now, but that's a little bit like the hope and prayers on on gun violence. We need to actually elect people who will structurally change it. And we've had bad experiences in the past with Democrats in the aughts having full power and not doing it. So we need to, but we need to, we've made progress, but we need to commit this party. And frankly, what the Build Back Better agenda and the, uh, the, the campaign finance reform bill that didn't get through because of Mansion and Cinema was very bold reform at the federal level. So there's been progress, but we need to keep an eye on the ball, but we need to win these races this way. We're going to hold both thoughts. And the other thought we need to hold at the same time, Matt, is the Democratic coalition, it's really a coalition of multiple, what might be separate parties in a multi-party uh, system in, in Europe or, or Asia. Um, we don't agree on everything, but we can't hold power, have a democracy without winning together. But the part of the party that ran those ads on crime has set us back on criminal justice reform, set us back on structural racism. We still needed to work together to win this race. Yeah. But we still need to fix that internally and not lose our eye on the ball. Us walking away with the ball would have gotten us in trouble. I'll just conclude on this because I want to be positive about the victory. We won a big game, but the season's far from over. Or if you like martial metaphors, we won a big battle, but the war is far from over. And that's why we're trying to be excited, take a victory lap, but then let's remember we got it, we've got to continue on. I, I also want to point out one really important fundamental difference in the way these two campaigns were funded. And it's a it's kudos to the infrastructure that we do have that they 
they raised the campaign itself. Janet's campaign raised a lot of money and used the system as it exists. And one of the most strategic ways, most effective ways to spend your money, and that is through the candidate and the candidate being able to express a clear message and a lot of money. And, uh, you know, Ben Wickler, the whole crew, right? Like they have amazingly figured out, right, how to take advantage of the system, raise lots and including small dollar donations. So, like, let's remember, right, like this was a village effort including national resources, right? And I think that, that we won't always have access to those, but it is still compared to the way the other side ran it, which was almost all exclusively through independent expenditures, very small amounts of big money donors, rich billionaires putting in, right? Much more, I would say, democratized effort on our side, also through the campaign versus independent, which is always better, um, I would argue. And um, also they got to spend their money more efficiently. The campaign gets a way better rate on those ads than those independent groups. So I think that is, that is one of the things that just within the current structure that like it is kudos to them for using the current system as best as possible. But with that, folks, we got to take a break. You're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. We are debriefing the historically important spring election. Robert, there's a lot of stuff. We can talk about a lot of different angles on this, and I will give you you know, further opportunity. Uh, but I do want to talk explicitly about something you mentioned earlier and just get, uh, get our listeners really focusing on what we think is one of the biggest takeaways, and that is this, this amazing uprising of democracy and people's understanding of the importance of these kinds of elections and all elections and their role in them and getting engaged. And um, we saw it early on when we had hundreds of people show up for our forum for this race, hundreds. It was one of our largest forums ever. Not quite as many people on for the US Senate forum we did, but pretty darn close. And it was sort of the canary in the coal mine that this was going to be a different election that I would say progressive voters. And we certainly tried to work hard to organize folks, talked a lot about it on the show. We're trying to get people motivated to understand the importance of this race, the historic nature, the issues, the values that were at stake and that needed to be injected into this race. Um, and so, Robert, I want to get your thoughts and just you know, especially looking forward, right? We, we launched a, this week, a 2024 battleground fund to get focused immediately on the vision of the kind of election and, and, and system we think we need to build as progressives and take responsibility for. And that means starting with finding and continuing to do the work we have been working on now for a number of years, including our Movement Politics Academy, but getting real serious about finding the next generation of progressive leaders throughout this state, diverse leaders, and help them run for office. In addition to getting smart about thinking about how do we build out the kind of structures and volunteer and systems and networks that can actually help elect people in 2024. Robert, your thoughts on some of the lessons learned looking forward. I mean, it's what 
we've been learning for some time. Uh, it's what's been known about democracy for a very long time. Democracy is a participatory sport. And we're just going to be pundits or on the sidelines uh, or hobbyists if we just expect politicians to act differently than their incentives. And if we allow campaigns to only be about the big money in the ads, then the big money will determine what happens. And that's the history of the development of structural inequality and the rigging of the economy of the last 50 years and the uh, and the diminution of democracy in stages. And we, but we also can have an impact and win because there's a lot of thought going on in the progressive movement in a lot of other circles uh, about persuasion and about the one thing that really can move people and change minds over time is direct interactions, deeper conversations where we listen to each other. And that requires an ethic where we under, meet people where they are, understand where they're coming from, don't come in with judgments and 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 go off on them because they hold views that we don't agree with, or we're trying to persuade them to come along. And that there's a huge number of cross-pressured voters who could be influenced by those anti-immigrant, those anti-trans and those crime ads, but also want fair elections, also want abortion rights, also want more economic opportunity in their communities, also want more more quality generally, more racial quality. And so we can reach those people, but only if we talk to them, the 30-second ads don't do anything but polarize and, and uh, control them based on almost homing beacons. It's a hiving thing, like, oh, this candidate let a rapist go. I'm voting against them. Now, what do they do when the next ad says that this candidate, the, the opponent, let another rapist go? I mean, it, it, what kind of democratic discussion is that? Is that not to mention that Supreme Court justices have very little to do, have nothing to do with sentencing, uh, you know, uh, convicted uh, criminals at any level? Well, Robert, the other strand here that we need to talk about is what, uh, how this connects to what's being experienced uh, in all of our courts. You, you started this by talking about this is a national trend. In fact, Robert, I believe it was Carl Rove in Texas who first laid out the blueprint and saw that you could essentially remove what was a pretty, um, if, if I'm right, nationally recognized progressive uh, court in Texas and took it over and use the blueprint of early using data and smart targeting. And a lot of the stuff that Roe brought to the Bush uh, campaign, he started doing that in court, court races in Texas and took what were sleepy, virtually un nothing into million dollar races. Now that was it. It was like close to million dollars, which for Texas compared to we just spent when all's told, Robert, I bet you this will be 60 million, you know, independent, all this. It's hard to track all the money because some of it isn't trackable. Anyways, um, this connects to the ProPublica article I mentioned, and I want, we'll put a link to it. Our listeners need to go read it. Uh, they do fantastic uh, investigative journalism. Basically, uh, Supreme Court Justice uh, Clarence Thomas has been taking and for years decades money and trips they're essentially i mean 
bribes, right? They're just, he's hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, just lot of trips and all sorts of stuff from a billionaire. Robert, I don't know if you had a chance to read it. It just broke this morning. But like, when I saw it, I was like, does he, like, how could you not know that that's not okay? And like, but the other thing to me is like, eh, this is the court. This is, this is who these people are and who they're, who they do the bidding for and who, and if it's not just a strict bidding relationship, these are the people ideologically that they align with, that they believe, they believe in what they're doing. And they, it is often on the behalf of wealth and power. Robert. It shows they, it, it reminds me of Daniel Kelly. They don't mean, they don't mean anything they say that they don't think rules apply to them. That's why we want to throw the book at low-level drug offenders who happen to be young people and black and brown and not have the resources to defend themselves in court, and why Donald Trump is supposed to be immune from prosecution, right? They actually mean when they say law and order, law and order for the people we want to control. And so that's what they mean about ethics. Ethics are for other people. We've had these same debates about recusal on the state Supreme Court where they, you know, Daniel Kelly recused himself from a case involving a past donor, then unrecused himself after the donor contributed to him in his reelection campaign. It was unbelievable. And PolitiFact, which is not add to democracy when they, when they parse this way, found it only half true because he never was able to act on it because he lost his reelection. I'm sorry, that doesn't make it half true. That is silly and that doesn't help educate anyone. If you lose and you try to be corrupt, if you take the bribe and then you're not in office, you lose. Therefore, it's, it's only half true that you were, you know, accepting bribes anyway. So look at Daniel Kelly. Either he actually believes in that non-concession concession speech that he is on some higher ethical plane Given his record of public statements and how clear it is that he's in a right-wing extremist who graduated from the Pat Robertson Law School, Regents University Law School, uh, how can he put himself on some ethical terrain about above politics and the law? And part of this actually also, so there's, so it is strips that these are politicians in robes. Uh, Clarence Thomas thinks he's a king and deserves, you know, really grand things and doesn't think rules apply to him because he's a Supreme Court justice, or they sometimes refer to themselves the Supremes, though they're not nearly as talented as the actual musical group, the Supremes. Robert, I think what's happened is Janet Protosiewicz is, and I'm not going to say she stumbled upon this because it was core to the strategy, but is by opening up and essentially matching them on this politicization, and I would just call it an honest discussion of what is happening in the court, how people have basic values and beliefs that they bring to their assessment of you know, what the law is and what the Constitution says, and also that that is an, a constant and evolving document and concept and what this guy and this whole brand that they've been jamming down our throats for a couple of decades now right effectively is they've been incredibly 
partisan, incredibly partisan, and honest about their values and ideology, and then just tried to portray that as if that was an honest and only interpretation of the Constitution and the law, and that everything else was, shall we say, you were being um, radical, you were, you know, you were, you were getting, you were outside of, you were legislating from the courts. Folks, we got to take a break. You're listening to Battleground Wisconsin. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. We continue to debrief the Supreme Court election. And before we broke, we were just discussing the, the corruption and the money in the court. Robert, I'd like to move on to some other topics, but I, I want to give you one, you know, give you a final word on just this. What I mean, to me, it's the the essence of the fight that we're in both within the court system, but within government and in our, our politics is how do we take on just this entrenched wealth and money? And it's, it's just, it's stranglehold on our democracy. We just get to get real about the law. You know, this idea that there's purely objective, like it's some sort of objective computer, you know, legal decision-making or strict construction, accurate construction of the intent and the wording of an original document like a constitution. No historian thinks there is one interpretation. These are problematized forever and someone's values influence the way they look at this. There is such a thing as a balanced legal mind where you try to be honest with yourself about your values and see if you're fair and think about whether you're fairly interpreting the law. Their, their judges, the ones they, they elected, because they elected the ones that would always decide in, fa in favor of big corporations, big pharmaceutical companies, polluters, you know, uh, any, any corporate fossil fuel companies, you name it. That's what was really behind this, folks. And we don't say that enough. Um, those folks are doctrinaire. They're ideologues. Daniel Kelly can't even step back and think about whether he's fair, uh, interpreting law fairly because he thinks that his religious interpretation he has said this in his blogs that that the, that the uh constitution is was ordained by god and he knows the truth about god i mean seriously that is in in the public record i do want to say how do you have supreme court races matt where we have elections if we don't know what the judges stand for how's the public assess judicial philosophy and how or the credentials they have to interpret the law in certain ways it's absurd and what we had before is kind of a dog whistle everyone heard. They knew who the Democrat and the Republican was. Why don't we be out front, more out front? But secondly, this kind of thing, you see it with U.S. Supreme Court candidates before seeking confirmation before the Senate Judiciary Committee. The three Trump appointees basically lied about Roe versus Wade in their testimony on the grounds that they didn't want to comment on something they could rule on. So they hid it. So that, that's better. Uh, and I just want to say this about partisanship, because we are so loose on partisanship. And I heard a UW-Madison political scientist, I'm sure, you know, he's, he's a great scholar, and I would have enjoyed him in school, but he was identifying the partisan nature of our Supreme Court elections back to the recalls. It goes way back further than that. Uh, it, and the, the modern version, the, the right-wing takeover, corporate takeover of the courts is a 1990s strategy. But you can argue it always was. Here's what we need to think about about partisanship. We really do divide ideas, values between the parties. They're collections of issues and views. 
it is not wrong to think about that in elections. What is wrong is, and this is how we need to use partisanship, pure partisanship that's only about your advantage and not about issues, not about values. And that is what pure partisanship is. But now we say, if I introduce a bill as governor in my budget, this is what the Republicans say, that we don't like in issue terms, then it's partisan. No, it's his values. He's governor. He's supposed to propose budget care expansion. You're supposed to discuss it because he put it on the table, okay? But you, can, you it's not right for you to disagree in terms of outcomes, but you can disagree because uh, you may have, hold different values. So that is where we, that is, so we, we're, we're really confused about this. We just say it's partisan, therefore it's bad. So if one party is for protecting abortion rights, it's not partisan. That's why people have moved to that party who believe in abortion rights. So before we move on to other topics, I do want to close our Supreme Court conversation and election conversation by thanking all the volunteers who worked on this program. Um, it was amazing. We had volunteers from around the country. Uh, in particular, I want to mention a couple of key volunteers because I think it's important to like put a face on this. Um, Kiki from Oakland, phone bank with us probably, ugh, I don't know, maybe six times. And then flew into Wisconsin, into Milwaukee and did doors uh, the final weekend in Milwaukee to help get out the vote. Shout out to Kiki and the other Kikis of the world who uh, went above and beyond. Um, here at Citizen Action, we announced this that uh, we've done this now two, the last two election cycles with thank you, with thanks, I guess I would say, uh, to the president of Citizen Action, Mark Thompson, um, in Gingrass Thompson and Walks, the law firm that donates two bucks tickets to the top canvasser, volunteer canvasser with Citizen Action. Um, our top volunteer canvasser, Renee Gash from Green Bay, could not attend last night's Bucks game, which was the uh, uh, for the winner. So she graciously uh, gave it to second place. And I I just received a text as we were recording here from second place, uh, Julia Benker from Eau Claire, who uh, got to go last night with her father. And her father is a longtime Bucks fan. And, you know, what's better than a Bulls-Bucks game for a longtime uh, Bucks fan? So uh, thank you, Mark Thompson and all the volunteers um, who, who put in the time. Uh, and uh, it's just it was great. And you'll we'll have photos uh, in our uh, weekend e-newsletter. Julia has forward of her and her father at the game and the Bucks clinched uh, first place in the playoffs, uh, uh, first seed in the playoffs last night. Uh, and Julia got to go to that game courtesy again of uh, Mark Thompson. Again, all you volunteers. Thank you. Um, we need more. The truth is um, we can do a lot better. And we will do better in 2024, and we're going to commit in focus to building that infrastructure, including the candidate recruitment, right? We launched this fund. We're going to put a link to the fund. Every dollar that you contribute goes directly to supporting our effort to recruit, train candidates, and we continue. We have kept full-time field program. Uh, the, the folks that we have hired to go out on the doors, they're staying around, and we're talking about the state budget and we're going to be 
preparing for 2024. Every dollar you donate goes directly to that work, directly talking to voters and recruiting and training candidates. So folks, please donate, get involved. The, the thing that really this ailing democracy needs is more of us, more of us in action. So uh, Robert, I don't know if you have any final, any other final thoughts on that. Otherwise, I want to hear from you. I want to hear from you about Brian Stiles. Um, it's a little bit of a transition, but Brian Stiles, you talked about this last week or a couple, was it last? I think it was last week or the week before as it relates to him demonstrating his loyalty to Donald Trump uh, by writing this ridiculous letter that he uh, wrote with some other uh Trump supporters <laughs> to the New York City DA about the prosecution of uh, Donald Trump. You have more information about his continued interference uh, on behalf of his buddy, Donald Trump. So Brian Stiles was a former Paul Ryan staffer and has styled himself as a more reasonable Republican, uh, pun intended. But he is he has joined the infamous Jim Jordan and another right-wing MAGA member of Congress, in harassing the district attorney of New, of New York City, um, Bragg, for pursuing the prosecution of Donald Trump. And they have written a letter to Bragg, calling him out, saying it's a witch hunt, de uh, demanding that he turn over all his evidence for them to provide oversight on the grounds and 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 threatening to subpoena him if he doesn't and to, to come before the panel strong uh, legal concept that, that and all Brian Stiles say he was an upfront this week which did a good job um is that why what what authority they have well we want to make sure no federal money because we fund you know the the court systems was used for this it's like do you have any evidence of that and it's like well we would look into that this is our oversight so it's clearly an intervention. Uh, D.A. Bragg has written a strong letter back saying, basically, you have no jurisdiction and back off. But remember, we had this situation January 6th where all of their people who were involved in the insurrection, the Jim Jordans, just ignored their subpoenas. Now they're going to partisanize subpoenas in a way that subpoenas can't be used for legitimate purposes. And they're going to say, uh, they're going to they're going to make a big deal about Bragg not answering their subpoena if they issue one. Uh, so and he's you know on Wisconsin television he is out front on this and he is in the most competitive of the congressional districts held by Republicans. It is much closer partisan margin now with the new districts than the congressional district three is the other major target uh, that we that could potentially Democrats would pick up. So please, we need an opponent for Brian Stiles. There is no distinction in him and the Trump wing of the party. He is operating as, uh, they're operating as little defense lawyers from Congress for Donald Trump. Yeah, look, uh, clearly Stiles thinks he can do this little bidding here and be in the good graces of Trump because he has tried to in the past fancy himself as a more independent-minded Republican, which is fantasy uh, in this 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 whole escapade confirms all of that, all of that. Robert, we got to talk. Uh, well, first, let's let's take a break. When we come back, I do want to talk about this study that came out about jobs in Milwaukee and just 
get some comments and, and, and some perspective on it. Folks, you're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin. Again, we're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. We are all over the socials too. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Check us out there and you ought to join. That's right. You ought to join Citizen Action. I don't care if you um, want to be super active, get involved, uh, start coming to events, make phone calls. You should support those that are doing this um, this very important cleansing of democracy. So check us out. Make a donation. Again, you're listening to Battleground Wisconsin. Welcome back. This is the Battleground Wisconsin. That's right. Robert, I want to uh, hear from you about this new report that came out this week. I took a good look at a... I guess you could call it a full inventory of the jobs in the city of Milwaukee, which is the largest city. So it's a a worthy place to look at and try to better understand what's happening in a critical part of Wisconsin's economy. It found a shocking number and it's shocking to people if you're not paying attention to what's been going on that Milwaukee suffers from just a lot of really low paying jobs. They use the term bad jobs. I'm going to avoid that term. I know they're probably using it for a reason, but these these essentially are really low-paying jobs that lead to a whole host of other issues uh, for folks who have to work in them uh, because they don't pay the bills. Robert? And this is a report done by our good friends at Cows Center of Wisconsin Strategy at UW-Madison, Laura Dresser, and her colleagues And I suppose, Matt, if we're going to talk about good jobs, there have to be bad jobs. But I'll take your point. Um, Only if you live in a completely binary world. uh, Well, our language tends to be binary, but we can disagree on that. Um, I would say this, that this would not be some of these jobs are not bad if you're if you're if you if you're working and it's discretionary income, if you're trying to pay rent. If you're trying to keep keep uh, keep food on the table for your kids, then these jobs are bad in that way. They have other rewards. Some of them are bad in both ways, but you're right. Yeah, they're low-paying jobs. Bad. They're really poorly paying right. jobs that do not pay a living wage and allow people to have the opportunity and freedom they need to live the lives that we all should have. Right. So the five... jobs, though, aren't necessarily bad. Many of these are important service sector. They're it's rewarding work. It just pays crap. And it's because we have a system that allows that to happen. So, I mean, I'll say if I retire and I decide I want to work in a low-paying job in a library because I enjoy it, then and that's kind of walking around money, that's not necessarily a bad job, but that's not most people working in low-income jobs. So here's the problem. 40% of, of jobs in Milwaukee are low-wage jobs do not pay even remotely a wage you can live on. And then we have Republicans with a gerrymandered legislature keeping scorn on all people who require any social safety net or public benefits. And they all, these jobs do not provide generally health care, other benefits. You don't get to save for retirement. Uh, then we're going to turn down the batch care expansion money and make a lot of these people eligible for any health care they can afford, right? Because they're not provided at work and we don't require it because... 
this majority also stands in the way of uh, moving to a to a system where healthcare is a right, just to take the healthcare piece of it. Uh, let alone whether, because these a lot of these jobs are not even in the city, whether there's adequate public transportation to get there, whether you're commuting two hours a day uh, to try to get to these jobs based on where they're located. So it's just an, a cautionary note that we need to look away from the headlines, which are always about the unemployment rate, and think about the employment rate in family supporting jobs and to improve the supply of those, that just having people in some job, obviously that's better than no job, but it is insufficient. And it does have huge impacts on people's life prospects, the lives of their kids. A whole lot of other social issues we have are, are being caused by this because we allow this, because our minimum wage is still seven and a quarter an hour in Wisconsin. Robert, I, I, I'm not sure exactly when the report was done, but um, the, in terms of the time frame it looked at, but we've talked a lot and we'll continue to talk. Dr. Rosen's going to be joining us again soon about inflation, the Fed, all this stuff, right? You know, and this is a core um, component of inflation. These folks in a lot of these jobs that they're talking about, a lot of the inflation has been because there has been massive wage increases in some of these areas because of COVID and, and the, the, the supply. And for the first time in my lifetime, some of these workers have seen significant increases in their, their bargaining power and leverage. And, and so when you hear a lot of people complaining about the inflation of, of wages, it is a lot, it is disproportionately these folks that did benefit in the last few years uh, because these jobs were so low paying, so suppressed structurally when that structure broke down, um, the realities of capitalism hit um, hit those um, those owners a lot more. And they're still they're still facing it that the, 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 it is still a, a good market for 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 lower lower wage workers right now. But this whole thing is laid bare and this report helps lay bare the structural problems that this presents. And Robert, you talked about it all the cascading issues that, that um, uh, a person has uh, in achieving real opportunity uh, when you start with a low-paying job. Um, but Robert, I, I do want to close with one, what I'm going to call it, we're going to, a brief discussion about sort of good news, bad news, but I want it framed in good news because we did talk and preview it concern before the election, uh, this scary, incredibly, I would describe it as even a bit next level, although we did have a fake elector scheme. Uh, <laughs> this idea that um, the Senate, if it got a majority, a veto-proof um, Senate uh, supermajority, that it would impeach uh, Janet before she even took office, appears to have died, or at least for now, uh, is not got air because Canodal, uh, uh, who won on Tuesday night, did come out publicly saying he would not support this idea, even it was he was the clown who gave it life by suggesting he might, surely for political reasons, uh, with his base. Robert, um, I don't know. I mean, maybe not for now, but this seems like a playbook uh, destined to uh, play out um, after a couple of rulings. So 
I think because we saw Senate Majority Leader Mayhew also say that they weren't going to do this, they would have to impeach her based on her conduct in her current court position. She's not even on the Supreme Court till August, which is a ridiculously long lame duck. It creates all sorts of possibilities of the current right wing court taking up cases early. Uh, but Robert, so I don't, I don't know if you've heard if you've been watching all these ads. She's there. There, I don't know, man. <laughs> Those ads. She sounds terrible. Okay, so right. I, take, I take your point, Matt. So here's here's the thing. So there seems to need they're going to need to be. They decided apparently, from what we can tell, they need some fig leaf, like some evit, some impeachable offense they can at least trump up, pun intended. Um, and so, but no one's safe. They may try to impeach D.A. Chisholm with this majority because they blame him for the Waukesha uh, uh, massacre at the parade. And, and just look to Philadelphia parade. for that. The effort that they've done yeah. in other places to go after D.A.'s, even though Chisholm is nowhere near where Larry Krasner is in terms of his approach to, shall we say, uh, public safety. So in the world of DAs nationally, he is a reformer, but he's not as bold a reformer as Larry Krasner. I agree with you. Uh, so, uh, but, and I'm not even saying that that's a huge playing field, but he is in the reform wing of DAs nationally of major cities. Um, there are, you know, you uh, Evers cabinet secretaries, other officials uh, there. And so if they, if they were to, by the way, impeach uh, Judge Janet now, she'd be ineligible for other judicial office. Here's the problem they'd have, though. Who would who would um, fill the vacancy, Governor Evers? So they're a little bit tied in knots there, but uh, we have to be aware that they could do much more damage at other levels. Um, here's the thing that's scary about the Supreme Courts. Canodal said when asked, well, this is during the campaign, if you'd if you you're open to, to um uh, impeaching Janet Protasewicz, what about Tony Evers? And he said, no, not Tony Evers, I'd be able to work with him. So what is that? This hasn't been really written about. That is a standard that says that when we disagree with another elected official, we can use impeachment. And what that is is that's the shift in norms that the right of the Republican Party has inaugurated where any Power, anything they can identify as a power lever, lever they'll lose for their own power, in, regardless of its original intent, the norm being high crimes and misdemeanors. The federal constitution language is repeated in the, in the Wisconsin constitution, which meant to the founding fathers furious breaches of the public trust, okay? That misdemeanors did not mean minor things at all. That, and, and there are a lot of misdemeanors that have that are very serious crimes in our country. So it's a misnomer to think misdemeanors are not serious. And so they will use any level of level of power. And it's very clear that there's this moral decay where even a supposed mainline Republican like, like Dan Canodal thinks it's totally okay to say, oh, I'd impeach this one uh, because I disagree with them. This one I'd be able to do some things with, so I won't impeach them. That's amazing admission, and it's really not been picked up in, on in mainstream media. It's just been reported as, oh, okay. Well, look, folks, we unfortunately have to wrap up this show. Um, it, it, let's just, uh, there's no other way to say it. Thank you, everyone, for whoever volunteered, whoever made uh, this week happen. It presents us opportunity, an opportunity for a different, uh, a different pathway, and we have to lean into that. 
and lean into our agency. So, folks, please get involved. Uh, go down, join Citizen Action, donate to Citizen Action, get involved in your community, and we'll see you next week here at the Battleground Wisconsin.